Welcome to the Todd DeVoe Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at in this fine world. You know, one of the things that we do in emergency management um, or when a large-scale disaster or event occurs is we look for some outside independent help uh, when it comes to writing um, after-action reports, um, especially when it's something that involves multi-agencies, um, you know, events. And so, well, if you've seen what's going on here in the United States in the last uh, few months, uh, you can tell there's been a lot of high-profile events going on. We're going to talk a little bit about those events. But also, what is the role of the consultant coming in to help write the after-action report? And today I have with me Nick Lowe, who uh, he wrote the after-action report uh, for a terrorist event that occurred um, here in California. And uh, we started talking about that, what it means. And I thought it would be a great idea to get Nick to come in to talk about that process, understand the consultant's role and what they do um, for us. So Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, Todd. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion this morning and uh, particularly this particular angle with after action reports and uh, what consultants can bring in terms of third party. And uh, this has become kind of a niche uh, for my company, CPARS, over the last uh, about year, five years, uh, starting with the after action report that you were mentioning, uh, the 12 to 15 terrorist attack. Uh, in San Bernardino County, we've gone on uh, to write a variety of others, uh, including about half a dozen just in the last year and a half to two years uh, for jurisdictions' response to COVID-19. So that's been a fascinating experience as well. And that includes uh, the city of Los Angeles' response to COVID-19. Uh, we happen to be uh, Southern California and LA-based, so a lot of our business is here by the LA County EMS Agency, the Port of Long Beach, a variety of others. Uh, so it's been a really uh, fascinating process to establish the business model uh, for after action reports. It really puts an interesting burden on consulting companies as well as the client themselves. And I know we'll go into a variety of those things, but happy to be here today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Nick. So <laughs> everyone kind of getting over a cold so I apologize for coughing. Um, quick question for you. This is going to sound like a silly question, but what is an after-action report? What's the purpose of it? Well, really the root, the root purpose of an after-action report is hopefully to learn from your experience. The first thing I tell clients when we meet with them is the after-action report is not intended to be a gotcha. It's not intended to make anyone look bad. But it is intended to identify gaps in the system, uh, whether that's capabilities in terms of planning, training, exercising equipment that was used, maybe procedures. Almost always, of course, we find communications uh, as a challenge. But it's not intended to be personal. And that's the biggest thing I communicate to each client is they really need to be open-minded, they really need to want 
to learn from the experience and not just want to check the box, right? Here in California, for example, when you activate an emergency operations center, the state of California requires you to then write an after-action report. Truth be told, most of those after-action reports just become check the box, right? right? The state requires it. We've got to do it. Let's just get it submitted. We really look for clients that really want to learn from their experience. So that's the purpose, the primary purpose of the after-action report. The other purpose is to memorialize what happened and when it happened. So you do have the learning element, but also the historical element. So as much as possible based on actual evidence or recollections, you know, we try to capture data that then presents the story of what happened. So frankly, you as the reader can come to your own judgments about what went particularly well and what are the areas for improvement. And we do try to focus as much as possible evenly on strengths as well as areas for improvement because we don't want to underestimate the strengths we don't want to demoralize you know the people who were involved who did really great things we want to champion those efforts we want them to come back to future responses with the same zest that they came to whatever response uh, we're evaluating and we also want to optimize those strengths. So maybe we can take those strengths and make them best practices and apply them to either other clients or other jurisdictions or other organizations. Um, so that, I suppose, in a nutshell, is the purpose of the after action report. But it really comes back to the client's driving uh, motivation for doing the after action report in the first place. And hopefully, it's with those things in mind and not just to check a box or to come out of it thinking they're just going to look brilliant and everything's going to be glowing, right? So they need to be open to recommendations and areas for improvement as well. You know, for me growing up from, you know, a kid being a, an EMT, the paramedic, and then working through the system, you know, we, we always reviewed our calls, right? We did mm -hmm. call reviews, uh, whether it was a, um, independently between the the group or there are case studies that we have to do on calls and we have to do things called tape reviews and things like this so we're constantly always taking a look at this and seeing how we can improve ourselves and and that's realistically what we should be doing with the after action reports as as well um Absolutely. but that that being said <laughs> there seems to be like everything that we do nowadays politics gets played into into it and I remember writing the after-action report um, for a fire drill that we did. And the one of the complaints that came across uh, from the participants in the fire drill saying, hey, I didn't even understand what that noise was. I didn't realize it was a fire alarm. Um, I've told the story before. Is this, they said it sounded like a dryer buzzer going off. Mm -hmm. And so I put that in the after-action report. And I was told by somebody to remove it because yeah. if it was in the after-action report, they had to fix it. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. 100%. Right? <laughs> and that's your motivation for writing the report in the first place. Right. So, yeah. so how do we get people to like look at that and saying, yes, this is an improvement plan? Yeah. So that is a huge challenge. And we run into it. One, I think the first thing is to set expectations up front. So I will honestly say to a client, 
as soon as we start the project, that one, they will not have editorial control over the report. They never get an editable version of the report, no matter how much they beg or plead for it. We always maintain editorial control of the report. That doesn't mean that they don't get to offer feedback and provide additional evidence if maybe there's something that we missed. Um, but our intention is to look at the response holistically and provide you with a complete picture of the response. Good and bad to tell the whole story regardless of what that covers. It is then up to the client to decide whether they want to change our recommendations into corrective actions and include them in an improvement plan, right? So we argue at least up front that we are not changing our recommendations, but the client can choose what they do with those recommendations and they're not bound to do anything right. with our recommendations. And so we do always provide an improvement plan and we explain in the improvement plan that that's their opportunity to even say they disagree with our findings in the after action report or uh, something we think should be a priority maybe isn't really a priority to them. But I am really a stickler in after action reports. I say up front, do not hire CPARs if you're looking for a whitewashed after action report or you don't want to tell the whole, whole story because our motivation for even pursuing this work is to save lives and property uh, and to make our communities more resilient. Luckily, as a small business, I have the luxury as the decision maker, and luckily we're successful enough that I can say that and I can say no to clients. There are certainly consultants out there, I think, unfortunately, but I understand the bind that they're in, who you know will say, sure, we'll remove that because it's politically controversial or uh, it's too much of an ask for the jurisdiction to pursue this remedy. But as for us, we feel that fiduciary obligation to the community to help tell the whole story. And yes, politics is huge. And frankly, we'd all be better off if we just acknowledge that politics does play a role. So for example, when we did the after action report, I won't name anyone, but for a number of jurisdictions in response to COVID-19, I, you know, we always ask the question, how did politics play a role? We know everything is about power and jockeying for power and, uh, you know, political clout and looking good in front of the public. How did these things play out? And we had some jurisdictions that frankly blatantly lied to us and said, oh, politics had nothing to do with it. You know, we always <laughs> just had the best interests of the jurisdiction in mind. Frankly, we called them on their BS right then. And of course, after interviewing hundreds of people and serving their partners and interviewing external stakeholders, we end up finding out the truth anyway. So it's best if we just acknowledge it. And it's funny because I started my career 20 years ago working on Capitol Hill for a member of Congress. So I come to everything. My degree was in political science. So I kind of take a political slant or perspective on many of the things that we do. Um, so I encourage everyone, just acknowledge. We all know it happens. Don't deny it. Um, let's learn about how to deal with politics in an emergency. Let's use these after action reports as an opportunity to do that and to improve because it's not going away. We would be ignorant 
if we thought politics wasn't going to play a role. So it's tough, but it really requires that upfront discussion with the client. And I think, you know, I mentioned to you before, you know, we say upfront to the client that there are things ultimately you're going to read in the report that you don't like or you don't agree with. And we have to agree now to disagree later uh, and to accept that. And that is all part of the process. And hopefully everyone respects the process, realizes that it's independent and autonomous uh, and things come out cordially in the end. But we've had circumstances where they did not. Um, But sorry, that's a long answer to your question. Uh, But yeah, it plays a major role and it's a constant back and forth, not only with the client themselves, but with all of the stakeholders involved. But I encourage consultants to stand their ground. You know, my integrity is more important to me than any client or any project. And so I would rather lose a client and never work for a client uh, ever again than have anyone in this business take question CPARS's or my personal integrity. Um, And so I encourage clients to take that same perspective. So with that in mind, um, we were talking earlier about, well, the, the last few shooting incidents. So the mm-hmm. Buffalo and then Texas and then uh, this current one in, in, uh, in, in Illinois. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we're going to, we're going to see these after action reports come out on that. And I mean, Illinois is still fresh. They're still trying to figure out what's going on. They don't even, the, the, the criminal investigation isn't even over on that one. Right. Um, but now let's go to Texas here for a minute. And things are leaking from that investigation. Um, it is not looking good for, for Texas law enforcement right now. Um, you know, what's going to be the process for writing an after action report on something like that? Yeah. So, you know, the way I think about it from a consultant's perspective is it's almost like serving on a jury and you do have to come into the process as unbiased as possible. Right. When you're going through Guadir for a jury, they ask you, you know, have you heard anything in the news about this case? Do you have any background information on this case? Obviously, every consulting company is going to have some background information on the Uvalde shooting. They're going to have to do their best to put that aside, because even though things are looking, say, bad for law enforcement right now, we don't have the complete picture. And I really we really try our best to come in and be independent and not come with any preconceived notions. It may very well be that the information coming out right now proves to be the accurate story. And the evaluation of the response is very in line with the information we're hearing. But it's also possible that there are many perspectives that we haven't heard. By the way, speaking of politics, it may be really politically controversial to even say that statement, right? Particularly when you're speaking in front of victims and for survivors, right? And rightfully so, they want to place blame. They're angry, um, obviously devastated. And so it is hard for a consultant to go into it and even in this case, maybe tell victims and survivors, listen, we cannot rush rush to judgment. We have a process in place, but we assure you, if you will, justice will be done through this process. We will do an independent analysis. But that's one of the struggles we ran into in San Bernardino, for example. And it was really one of the hardest evaluations 
of my career was, you know, speaking directly with and interviewing the victims and the survivors who rightfully so wanted to place blame, wanted to place blame on us as the consultants doing the evaluation. And by the way, there's nothing you can say or do to defend yourself, really, nor should you when someone has lost a loved one other than hear them out and hear their concerns. But it may be that they too don't find things in your evaluation that they agree with, and they may heavily disagree. And you as the consultant have to have thick enough skin to deal with that. But I think when it comes to something like Vivaldi, where a lot of information is coming out already, you have to go into it independently. You have to put aside everything you've heard. You have to start from the beginning gather all of the evidence, gather the reports, do all the interviews, do all the surveying, whatever it may be, um, and try to come into it as independently as possible. And then when you produce the report, uh, you know, produce something that's as truthful as possible. And I say that because, you know, many of these evaluations are based on people's recollections of what happened. In many cases, there isn't direct evidence. There isn't video recordings or uh, radio recordings of communications. So it's tough to take, you know, all of these uh, perspectives and try to figure out what the facts are and what the true story is from those different perspectives. And in some cases, it's okay, in my opinion, at least as an author of these after action reports, to present multiple perspectives and say, why we don't know if story A or story B is accurate based on recollection, but we can learn from both of those stories. And so what can be learned from those two perspectives? And I think it's okay as a consultant to acknowledge that. I'm not threatened by saying, hey, you know, we couldn't get to the root cause of this issue. There just wasn't enough evidence, but here's what we can learn from at least what we heard in those perspectives uh, that we learned about. And again, all of this just means the consultant has to be confident, uh, has to stand their ground, has to be capable enough to make those types of statements. By the way, the only other thing I was going to mention on the after action report is, you know, you were mentioning when you were in EMS and doing, you know, kind of after action reviews. You know, I always tell everyone, your after action report doesn't need to be 100 pages long or 200 pages long. Probably if you hire a consultant and it's a major incident, it probably will be that long. I just tell anyone, you know, I know everyone's busy. We continue responses on a daily basis. Even take 15 minutes to sit down and jot down some lessons learned from those responses. Make a bulletized list. Maybe it's half a page. Maybe it's page long. That's fine. But at least learn something from each experience. But you don't always have to write you know, a hundred page report, which is why many jurisdictions don't. Um, but I encourage everyone just to do something after each response. Absolutely. It has to be as big as it needs to be, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, excuse me. So a couple of things on that. One, one is I, I'm going to bring Mark Baker in, um, our book editor. He's, he's uh, reviewing a book um, uh, on disaster by design. And, and I think this might actually fall into this conversation a bit. Mark, welcome. Hey, thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, like, you're listening to the conversation. Um, I mean, like, in, in the book, Disaster by Design, is that 
fall into what we're talking about as far as like the after action and, and what it means to to improve from from disaster response? So I think so. I, I think it definitely falls into the after action review process and, and the ad identifying the vulnerabilities that were created by our choices. Uh, just uh, to back up a little bit on the AAR topic that uh, Nick was having. I think that's personally, I just wanted to chime in and say that I feel that that's the most important process in, in growth is that after action review process. But it only works if the uh, you know all the players involved come in with uh, you know they come in humble and willing to be vulnerable and they set emotions aside and then you have a totally productive after action review process and, and from that you develop you, you identify your gaps and, and improvement plans I think you, that's how you grow especially in this profession and it carried over for me from the army as well and so I just wanted to throw that out there before pivoting um, uh, natural disaster or disaster by choice is the book or disaster by, by choice I'm sorry disaster by choice by Ian Kelman and 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 it goes into the, the choices we make as humans as far as creating vulnerability here you know where, where we choose to build our structures and live um, in, in regards to the hazards that it's it's vulnerable to and, and what we choose to build it out of you know and, and and whether or not we choose to implement recommended mitigations that would be identified during an after action review process um, and, and, and if we, we choose to do those things, we improve our position and, and reduce our, our vulnerability to disaster. And if we don't, we we create bad situations for ourselves. We, we depend on others to come and help us and, and, and stress the uh, disaster response capability of the local community uh, by, by making those choices or not making those choices. Uh, that important thing from that one was the the other side of the coin was when you, when you have the choice, you don't make a choice or you make a bad choice, et cetera, is one thing. But what about that? What about that segment of the population that does not have that choice? They don't have the money to implement those mitigations. They don't have the resources, and they're not getting the the attention they deserve from from the local um, community, the, the leaders within that community to 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 help that. So those, those are the folks that kind of stuck out there, and for me, it sparked an idea to keep go forward to really hone in and focus on that locally. Um, but yeah, so that disaster by choice, it's about natural hazards are one thing but they only become disasters when they impact right so if nobody lived on the southeast the southeastern uh, coastline we'd never the the, the uh impact of a hurricane would be significantly decreased right but that's not realistic that's not probable so you hit you have to understand the vulnerability um make good choices to mitigate as much as possible and, and then um, and you gotta when, when, it, when you're told to evacuate, you know, you got to heed those warnings too. You know, you got to have a plan. You can't just, you can't, you can't stick our heads in the sand anymore and, and hope for the best. We, we have to have a plan. You know, in the army, they used to say, uh, hope is not a plan. And, and, I, and I believe that's, that's pr pretty accurate for this situation right. too. <laughs> so Nick, when you take a look at this, I mean, I know we we're talking a lot about the, about, you know, violence, right? But on the other end of it, I mean, we do still do after action reports for like the large scale fires in California, oh. sort of hurricane, you know, super hurricanes, all the hurricanes actually, but the things that make the news at least, <clears throat> you know, um, what's the difference in, in, in the, the view that you take, or maybe there's not, the, way, the view that you take a look at when you're looking at those natural disasters compared to, uh, you know, a man-made crisis? Yeah, truthfully, I don't really take a different approach. Our process remains the same. Our independence, our autonomy remains the same. Uh, we're still looking to identify uh, strengths and potential gaps in the response and identify recommendations 
uh, and potentially corrective actions. You know, the only thing I would say changes is maybe some of the terminology and the wording and the sensitivities you take uh, to a, let's call it a, a violent or man-made incident versus a natural disaster. Obviously, we all know that the hurricane or the earthquake, you know, wasn't intentionally targeting a family or an individual or a community. However, you know, the terrorist or the perpetrator may very likely be targeting a certain individual. So we do change maybe the language that we're using. We often don't even refer to the name of the perpetrator or the terrorist in our reports. We'd much rather give attention to the survivors and the victims than the perpetrator themselves. We're not here uh, to promote the perpetrator's activity or to make a celebrity of the perpetrator. We'll often talk to the families first about what kind of language they want us to use. Do they want us to say that their family was taken versus their family being lost in an emergency? And so that's probably the big difference just in terms of the terminology of the report. But it's funny, just listening to Mark, one of the things we have found in after action reports related to natural disasters that I think directly relates to the book Mark was speaking about is, you know, we are a politically correct society and political correctness also affects emergency response and our expectations on the community to respond. One of the reasons our society is less prepared than, say, Japan is because it's not politically correct in the United States for us to say, listen, if you don't have 14 days of supplies and food and water, you might die. We don't say that because it's not politically correct. They say that in Japan and people are significantly more prepared than we are here in the United States, right? So those things play a role. Likewise, even with urban development, if you look at uh, the Christchurch earthquake of, forgive me, the years fleeting, maybe 2014, right? Christ Church came back and said, because of the dev devastation we experienced, we are not going to rebuild in a certain area of the city, period. It's right. not just open land, right? In the United States, it's not politically correct to say that, right? <laughs> Everyone has the right to rebuild, to rebuild on their property, right? So we have continuously occurring incidents in the same areas and the same nature because it's not politically correct here. So, you know, a little bit of my personal opinion there, but it is a finding we have found in these after action reports. And since Todd, you brought up politics before and how politics plays a role, politics plays a role in these things too, and political correctness uh, there. I think we need to be much more forthcoming with the public about the real consequences of these emergencies. Just like we were just talking uh, before we got on the air uh, about active shooter incidents and the run, hide, fight. You know, we don't teach people that this is a fight to the death, right? It's either you or the perpetrator. There's no talking the perpetrator down. Uh, you must fight this person to the death, right? Stab them in the neck, whatever it takes, blind them. Right. These things have to happen. But we don't teach that because, you know, we're kind of a, a, a gentler society, perhaps. You know, we're not we, we teach throw tennis balls at them. Right. Exactly. Or <laughs> talk them true. down or whatever. But, you know, we focus on the run and hide part, but not 
the fight part and what that really means. So, you know, I think we need to start talking to Americans like they're adults, like they have some personal responsibility. And I think until that changes, we're going to continue to see a lack of preparedness in the public in this country. Um, so sorry, my, my personal thoughts on that topic. Uh, yeah, you, you can get me started and we'll go down that, that rabbit hole of the violence of action and what that means. And uh, uh, Mark, what do you think? Yeah, so I totally agree with what you're saying, Nick. I, I think that a hard rea reality-based discussion is necessary for our uh, for our current climate. But the reality is that our current generation, if you will, is not prepared to accept that. They're, they're not prepared. They're not emotionally uh, in the right place to to have that hard conversation. So I find myself, you know, as an emergency manager, trying to have that conversation with you know, the, the school officials, how do you, maybe you have a technique is what I'm trying to get at. How do you convey the seriousness of that situation and, and the reality of, of the threat to a politically correct, emotionally sensitive audience? So how do you, have you had any uh, techniques that that's worked for that in, from your point? Yeah, I think recommendations we've made. One, a lot of it comes from peers, right? So we live in a society now of influencers, right? So who are the Instagram influencers and the Twitter influencers, things like that. Now I'm sounding aged too. Now my gray <laughs> hair is starting to stand up. You just got to let it well, hang out, Nick. Right? But you have to communicate to that generation. You have to communicate with them through the avenues that they listen to. So in this case, I do think you do have to partner with influencers and those types of individuals to communicate with that generation. Likewise, you know, for maybe an older generation, you do have to use more frank communications and continue those. But you have to at least use those frank communications. And in many cases, we're not using any of those blunt messaging in either case, regardless of who you're communicating to. So I do think there's a piece and there's also a piece about getting the next generation more involved in our efforts. You know, even I've been in the business 20 years now, I'm not the technology or the social media expert. Someone much younger than me now needs to tell me, you know, how to communicate better. And we need that group to be more involved in our industry. We need more divisions elements of our industry that speak to that topic. Uh, you know, for some jurisdictions, community preparedness just isn't a priority. Um, and for others, it is more of a priority. So um, I think there's a lot of pieces that go into it, but customizing the messaging, you know, and really sharing some of these lessons from these incidents. You know, we don't, we only share the lessons within our industry. We never advertise with the public. And I know the public's uh, uh, bandwidth, if you will, is limited and, you know, they want thing in sound bites, but there is information we can share from some of these reports um, that explains how the role of the public during these incidents and maybe how they can be better prepared too. And we have to realize that that's politically challenging to say, hey, the public, you maybe need to do some things to be more prepared. It's a horrible part of our society that we're experiencing, but it's not going away. Um, so we have to live with that reality and talk about that. And I think a big thing missing in our society is just the ability to talk about these things. Um, so yeah. lots of different avenues to take. 
yeah, it was real eye-opening for me watching because I'm involved with the CERT program down here. And uh, we just did a teen CERT Academy and watching those kids put on a tourniquet and they're, they're hesitant and whatnot. But then you imagine because, you know, some of us have seen what what a need for tourniquet really looks like yeah. and, uh, and, and, and put them in that situation. They're just not there yet. And I'm just curious if you had a technique for at least having that conversation because you, you, you have to be politically correct and emotionally sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my biggest concern now is we never thought about this 20 years ago because you kind of assumed, you know, at least as Americans, we would all help each other in a response. But we're such a divided country now that, frankly, people ask, well, Nick, what's your greatest fear? What keeps us up at night? And now it's what hazard we as Americans who are divided bring to the response to an emergency, you know, if we have a cyber attack and we don't have access to power and water or uh, finances and banking, those types of things, are we just going to turn on each other and eat each other alive? And I sadly think that that's something we now need to prepare more for. I think so too. You know, I think is interesting um, kind of along that lines is like, even with a natural disaster, I would say even with during natural disasters, when the hurricane comes or the big fire rips through, um, people are always asking who's to blame. And I don't know why we, is this a societal thing or is it really a humanity thing where we're always looking to blame somebody for uh, an event like a hurricane or a fire? I think it's a little bit of both, but you know, you think we're a very litigious society. I tell any one of my clients, if you're involved in an emergency, whatever it is, someone's getting sued. Yeah. And I think that that litigious nature is just part of our society now. And frankly, I also think we're a bit of a society that doesn't want to take any personal responsibility. So it has to be someone else's fault that something happened. And so I do think that those are partially societal that someone wants to be blamed. And that's why, particularly in our reports, we really try to avoid that approach of laying blame and saying, let's focus on just being better the next time. What's happened in the past, unfortunately, is the past. Justice should be done if needed, but we have to look at either preventing this or learning from it and responding better in the future. But I do think that's an unfortunate element, you know, particularly you know, no one wants anyone to be hurt or to die or for property to be lost. So even, you know, those of us, I haven't been a law enforcement officer, so I have sympathy for, you know, the officers in Uvalde. I don't know how personally I would respond to that situation, but you have to approach all of these things with some understanding that you don't necessarily understand what was happening in that situation. And so, you know, look to learn and grow. It doesn't help anyone bring back a family member. Right. That's for sure. You know, but we have to start, you know, we, we constantly use the term lesson learned, right? And we always kind of joke about it, right? Well, what's the lesson? We we saw the lesson, but we haven't actually learned, learned from anything, it, right. right? And that's the piece we have to focus on. Uh, and I hope that comes with it. But I do think it's a combination of societal issues, how we frame things and message them. Um, there's a lot involved in this complex topic. Lessons not learned or just lessons observed. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Mark, I'll let you have last word. 
Yeah, I was going to say uh, on that last uh, discussion, as an evaluator, I always went into it with the mindset, evaluate the process, not necessarily the behavior, and and uh, try to figure out how to improve the process in, in these things. But no, I, I I think it was a a great conversation. Like I like I said, I I'm a true believer in the after action review process. I think that that's the most valuable process of any exercise, especially in the HC uh, program. Uh, but uh, no, I, I appreciate the conversation. Absolutely. Same Nick, here. thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I love the conversation as well and hope to do it with you guys again. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. It's uh, been a great uh, conversation. And realistically, the idea of writing the after action review is is one of the most important steps that we could do in emergency management, I believe. Um, and if it's a large event, bringing in that consultant, that's somebody who is a third party independent to be able to take a look at the processes and learn from those. Because as it's been said, like the lessons are not learned, they're just lessons observed. So we need to learn from them and improve from them. And this really helps us do that. So until next time, first of all, I forgot to tell everybody, happy 4th of July week. Uh, it was a uh, great Independence Day week, I suppose. Um, and I want to say happy birthday uh, to Brian Colburn, uh, one of the producers here um, from Sitch Radio. His birthday was on Independence Day. So not only are we celebrating the independence of our, of our nation, we're celebrating the birth of uh, a fine fellow and a Marine at that. Until next time, everybody stay safe and stay hydrated.